Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. Praise God. I'm so glad you're here. If this is your first time listening to me, I'm Pastor Ed Spagnoli, and this is Gospel Saving Church, one of God's true churches of these last days, and this is our weekly broadcast of truth from God's Word. If you came here today to be taught the Word of God, to hear the truth, you came to the right place. We don't speak our own truths. We don't say our opinions. We teach the Bible. And that's what we do. We stand on the truth, and this is one of the reasons why God has risen up Gospel Saving Church to be the church that it is today, because we stand on God's truths. All of God's truths. Whatever truths are of God, those are what we teach, and that's it. So if you came here for that today, you came to the right place. Praise God. I am really so glad you're here. We always do, though, start with a word of prayer because the Bible says that we cannot understand the Word of God except by the Spirit of God. So let's ask God, please join me, let's ask God to help Him, help us, help ask Him to help us understand His Word today so that we can not only understand it, but of course, as the Bible says, not be hearers of the Word only, but hearers and then doers. Lord, thank you so much for your Word. Thank you so much, Lord God, for your truths. Lord God, thank you so much, Lord God, that we do love the truth here, Lord, at Gospel Saving Church. We, the truth hurts a lot of times, and that's why we are not a huge church, Lord, but we are a, a church nonetheless. Uh, but, but we teach the truth, Lord, and, and although the truth hurts, the truth is what we need, God. Lies and deceit and skating around truths and all of those things, those don't help people. So, God, we want to help people, Lord. We want to help ourselves. Lord, we need your word to teach us here in this church and those that are regular listens to us online from all over the world. We need your truths to lead us and guide us on our paths and to be a lamp into our feet and a light into our paths. So, Lord, we, we thank you that we have that here and we love you and we praise you. We thank you that you still allow your truth to be here. The world is in right now, the great apostasy, and where, of course, truth is fleeting from churches left and right, Lord, and it's it's really sad, but Jesus, you said it was coming, and we're in it. But Lord, may Gospel Saving Church never be a church that falls into apostasy. May it always, until the end, be a church that stands on your truths. And may we not be just those that know your truths, but Lord, those that live your truths as well too. We thank you, we love you, and we praise you. And we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen. All right, today we're going to be in Acts chapter 27, verses 21 through 44. We're actually going to finish the whole chapter today. We only got one more chapter after this. I'll give you a moment to open up your Bibles and uh, get there before we start reading and before we start studying. Uh, the title of our sermon today, very, uh, very traditional Christianity here, Obey Jesus Christ and Arrive Alive. Very simple title. Very simple title. It has to do with everything with the section of Scripture, but it also, of course, has another meaning. It has a physical meaning in Scripture, but it has a spiritual meaning, of course, in life. And so we'll talk about all that today. I'm going to read over the verses of Scripture, and you're welcome to either read along or listen along as I read, however you'd like to. But anyway, here we go. Acts chapter 27, the very halfway down to the end of the chapter, verses 21 through 44. The Bible says this. Luke writes this, I should say. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, 
You should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Therefore take heart, men, for I believe God that he, it, that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Now when the fourteenth night had come, as we were driven up and down the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. And they took surroundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little farther, they took surroundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. And as the day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day now you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and also took food for themselves. And in, and in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay, uh, a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea. Meanwhile, loosing the rudder ropes, and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. But striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the prow struck fast and remained immovable, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. And the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim, swim, should jump overboard first and get to land and the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. We're back to normal this week. If you weren't here last week, last week we had our special Christmas message. Why do you celebrate Christmas 2018? Getting back to normal this, mean, this week means that we get back to the study of Acts chapter 7. As I already said, we will finish the chapter today. After this, there is only one more chapter that we will have to study. Anyway, let me recap our Acts 27 that we were in, you know, a couple weeks back and prior so that we get up to speed. Two weeks ago and for the last couple of weeks before that, we've been studying Paul's travels to Rome where he was to stand before Caesar for judgment, fulfilling what Jesus Christ told him in Acts 23.11. Remember Acts 23.11, Jesus Christ stands by Paul. Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you've testified for me in Rome, so you must also bear witness. Excuse me, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. They have been traveling the Mediterranean Sea now for some time, 
and the trip has been a terrible one. Remember, they start out, Paul gets sick, then after Paul gets sick, they finally move on, but then the wind is so contrary, and the waves are so bad, and the weather is so bad, that they literally go slow moving what they had to move, and once they were even moving, uh, they, they, they weren't even able to move the ways that they had to go. They're, they're, they're so, this trip is such a disaster, it really is. They, they needed to go northwest to go to Rome, and they end up getting pushed, because of the wind, south, southwest completely to Crete. And then in Crete, those who had control of the ship decide, because of their love of money, to continue the trip during a terrible time and location in the Mediterranean Sea, known for a terrible storm called the Eurycliden, which was against the godly man Paul's advice to stay in winter in Crete. He said, hey guys, the weather's bad, the, this, this trip's going to end in disaster, it's not a good time to travel, let's winter here. They said, no, 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 we talked about that couple few weeks back it was because of their love of money and anyway they they push on what happens they run into this terrible storm into Eurycliden uh, which makes their journey just a long it takes their journey from being just a terrible one <laughs> and just a time-killing one to a nightmare and to life-threatening that that's so their their journey goes from just bad it goes from bad to worse and from bad to just time-consuming bad to terrible worse life-threatening and they're going to lose the ship now and that that's a bit more extreme, right? This is where we pick up with them in the section of Scripture. They are still in the midst of this light-threatening, exceptionally long journey, and right in the midst of this killer storm, and it is threatened to tear their ship apart a couple times and seemingly has no end. Leading them, of course, to our last verse of last week, or two weeks ago, I should say, verse 20, their conclusion of their situation. Verse 20, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. They thought there's no way we could survive. This storm is so bad. We're done for. (laughs) Pack it up. Let's go. Let's get ready to meet God. That's kind of what they were thinking. Does the killer storm get them? Verse 21, first verse of today. But after long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. We don't know how long they've gone without eating in this verse, but Luke opens up telling us there that they haven't eaten for some time. I'm guessing, you know, just, you know, knowing when the storm started, knowing how long they've been on the sea, I'm guessing they probably haven't eaten at this point for maybe three to five days now. I'm, I'm sure they're all very hungry by, by now, but with the way the boat's being thrashed around for the last week or week and a half that they've been in this storm, really, if they would have tried to eat food, think about it. Have you ever been on a bad flight on a, in, a, in a plane or a bad, a bad uh, uh, sea-faring experience where you've been on a boat where there's been a storm? You don't really feel like eating because if you do eat, what you do eat is probably going to come up. Right, because you know it's crazy things, and your body's out of balance, and everything's shaking around. And so, even if they would have eaten, everything probably wouldn't have stayed down. So they they probably were hungry, but not hungry, and wanted to eat, but really didn't want to eat. And because again, not a good situation. Luke tells us here that Paul feels the need to remind them of some harsh truth. He boldly stands up here in this verse and declares to them that what I told you so. 
I'm right, right? Uh, don't you just hate it when you make a bad decision and, and the person of reason who warned you not to make the bad decision, he throws it right back in your face. I know I do. Uh, I, I know I probably need it. They needed it. Uh, I don't know if Paul was throwing it in their face. I don't know if that's what he was purposely doing here. But if anything, I, I do believe that he is at very least angry with them for causing all of the garbage and the turmoil that they have brought on in the past week, week and a half, two weeks of their lives. Either way, he is justified in what he says here, and he just can't help himself to remind them that they should have listened to him because, you know what, had they listened to him, they they wouldn't be in this near-death experience. They wouldn't be thinking our lives are over. They wouldn't be in a... a, a a position that where they might lose the, the ship. I mean, pretty much the owner of the ship's going to lose everything. He says, you should have listened to me. I told you so. Now, now that Paul has that off his chest, he gives them both some good and bad news. Verse 22. And now I urge you to take heart. So, so be of good cheer. Cheer up, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only for the ship. He tells them the good news. All 276 of us that are on board are going to arrive alive. Uh, notice that's part of the title. The bad news, of course, the ship, eh, the ship's not going to make it, right? They were stupid for ever leaving Crete when they did, and I think that they would all agree to this point, even the owner of the ship and the pilot, as we, as I talked about them a couple few weeks ago, that, that at this point, uh, you know, losing the ship, as long as I get to keep my life, that's probably not that bad. Generally, in most cases, people would give all that they own for just another day of life or another few years of life or just not to die at that moment. So yes, the bad news, the ship's not going to make it. The people are going to arrive alive. I'm sure, you know, that's really good news to them. But here's the deal. By whose authority does Paul make this guarantee to them? How is he able to tell them that they're going to arrive alive? I mean, he's not God. Well, look at verses 23 and 24. Of course, it's elongated and drawn out with the sermon because we're talking about every verse. He would have been momentarily. They would have heard it right away. Verse 23 and 24. For there stood by me this night an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve. Paul tells him, hey, an angel, hey, the God I love and serve, the one on whom I belong, this angel told me, saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all those who sail with you. Whose authority does Paul give them this guarantee by? Well, of course, by his super powerful, almighty God, Jehovah, whom just gave Paul another amazing message, not by Christ, like remember Acts 23, 11, that message to Paul came by Christ himself. This one comes by a super strong angel of the almighty God of all the universe. And this angel reminds Paul of what Jesus Christ told him back in 23, 11, Acts 23, 11. Remember what I've been saying, Acts 23, 11, since I, since I taught it two, three weeks ago, right? When God says something's going to happen, it's going to happen infinity percent. And not only does God remind him of his promise in Acts 23, 11, that he would indeed, just as he did in Jerusalem, he will indeed go to Rome. So Paul's going to make it. He gives them some additional news, some good news. Jehovah here was granting all those that were on board with Paul, all 276 people, their lives, and that they would arrive alive. Paul's final words for a while, verses 25 and 26, he says this, Therefore take heart. So because of the information that I just gave you, you know, cheer up. Because, of course, 
Verse 20, we know they're thinking, that's it. We're done for. So, of course, we know that they weren't, they probably were still here thinking, that's it. Any day, any moment, the ship's going to break apart. We're all going to, you know, be cast into the sea. So, Paul gives them, you know, hey, guys, come on, cheer up, men. So, you know, keep your chins up. For I believe that it will be just as it will. it was told me. He says here, my God is an almighty God. And he is a God of his word. And Paul tells them, hey, if he says something will happen, same as I've been saying now, Paul says to them, I believe he's a man of, he's a God of his word. It's going to happen infinity percent. And God told me that he'd get us there alive and he will accomplish it. So cheer up. Verse 26, not without the bad news again, though. He keeps reminding them of this bad news. However, we must run aground on a certain island, which means that they'll have to run the prow or the very front of the ship below the sea line into the shallow ground near a close part of a certain island, which will destroy the ship completely. Why? The end of this section of scripture tells us, but you know, just so you know now, what happens is when you run the prow of the ship or any part of the ship into the ground, into a hard surface or into the ground, it gets stuck. Well, the waves don't stop. Waves are constantly moving. Remember, they're in a Euryclidon. They're in hurricane force winds. The the winds aren't or the, the waves aren't just splash, splash, splash up against some kind of well, they're you know, and there's huge waves and the sea's crashing into the boat and the sea's crashing into the beach and, and they're they're having huge swells of water in the ocean. So of course if you get your front part of the boat stuck in the ground and the back part's still floating free in the ocean, well, the part that's stuck is going to want to sit there and not move, while the back, it's going to move. The waves are going to move it around. And, you know, wood is not uh, infinity percent hard. Wood is breakable. And, of course, the water is one of the most Excuse me, water is one of the most powerful forces on this world. Water can eat through rock if it runs through rock long enough. Water can eat through metal if water runs against metal too long. So, of course, a ship being stuck with its prow, one end being trapped in the waves and sea, it's no, it, there's no, it has no chance against this, the, the, the terrible storm that they're in. So the ship will sink once that happens. But, but this should not have been a shock to them again, as I just said, because this is the second time now Paul has told them, hey, we're going to lose the ship, but we're all going to still be alive. We're going to all arrive alive. The, continue the herring event, verse 27. Now when the 14th night had come, now that's two full weeks since Paul gave them the good news that they would arrive alive, and we will find out later in verse 33 that they hadn't eaten here for this two full weeks either. He goes on to say, what was happening this whole time, he says here, Luke writes, as we were driven up and down the Adriatic Sea. So they were being, basically, the boat was being just driven one way or another way, one way or another way. The wind, whatever way the wind was blowing, whatever way the, the waves were crashing against the boat, they basically let the boat drive at some point here. We studied a little while back, and so that's the way the boat's been going. Now, there's a special note here. You may be looking if you're like a if you if you consider yourself a scholar or consider yourself you know a real you know Bible studier here. Special note here: Luke writes that they were being driven up and down the Adriatic Sea, but sadly, Luke 
is wrong, unfortunately. We know that if we look at a map of the sea, there's a map on the website. There's, there's uh, On our website, on all of our sermons, there's a maps of the situation. I haven't decided whether I'm going to put one out for today or not. But anyway, the, he's wrong. They weren't being driven up and down the Adriatic Sea. For you see, the Adriatic Sea starts at the coast of Venice, Italy, Croatia. They're kind of like the, those are the two countries that kind of that make a, you know, come together. Uh, and that's, of course, Italy, Croatia, north. Okay? And, and the Adriatic Sea ends at the heel of the boot of Italy, or also uh, adjoining Albania, which is across the Adriatic Sea. That's the other country that kind of borders it. That's kind of, it's, uh, there's another couple countries in there, but those are the north and the south ones. And, and we know that he's wrong because there was, they were nowhere near this sea or these lands. Uh, and, I, and I'll talk about why in just a minute, but you can't blame him because neither any him or neither anyone on board could see anything because of the storm. At this point in the scripture, we're going to find out here in just a verse or two or three, they were still deep in the Mediterranean Sea, way south of the Adriatic Sea, actually by about 500 miles. And we know this fact because soon they'll run the ship onto a beach in Malta. Well, Malta is a tiny island off the east coast of the tip of Sicily, which is a region of Italy, and in the easternmost part of the Mediterranean Sea. They could have never traveled 500 miles to the Adriatic Sea and back to the Mediterranean Sea in just 14 days. No way without, you know, there's just no way. No way with the storm thrashing them all around. And they were way, 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 they, they were, they had crashed into Malta. Malta was a hundred miles from a roughly a hundred miles from the coast of Sicily. And they were again, 400 miles from there was the Adriatic sea. There's no way. So anyway, does, does this make the Bible corrupt or inaccurate in any way? No, it simply means that Luke was a human historian. And of course, not only was he recounting the things that happened of God, but he was also recounting what he thought was going on as they were traveling. And of course here, he just simply made a geographical error because again, as I've stated already, neither, none of them on board could see anything. They were completely blind. The storm, at one point, they said they hadn't seen the stars or the sun in, in days. I, I don't expect that that would have changed because, again, they're blind. He doesn't know where they are. And, and you'll see even once they even get there, we'll get there in a little bit here, they don't, he doesn't even really know where he is even once they get to Malta. They're confused on, they know they're near land, but they, and they see the land. Eventually they're able to see something, but they don't even know what land that they're near. We'll, we'll, we'll cover that when we get there. Anyway, getting back to the verse, Luke finishes up by telling us, he says there, about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. So finally they sensed, not saw that they're near some land, which would be the first land that they would have thought they were near in over two weeks. Because if you look at the area that they were traveling in, on the map, there's a huge nothingness of just Mediterranean Sea. From Crete to Malta, uh, they're just straight Mediterranean Sea. Unless, unless, of course, you go down to Africa, but they were, of course, being driven in the Mediterranean Sea. That's where the Euryclidon hit. That's, that's where they were trying to travel. But verse 28, they took surroundings, found it to be 20 fathoms. When they had gone a little farther, they took surroundings again and found it 15 fathoms. So, so they're traveling along. They think that they're coming near some land, and so what do they do? They do this thing called checking surroundings and checking fathoms. Checking fathoms was something that ancient sailors did when they couldn't see anything, and it entailed them using 
uh, uh, lead lines using uh, uh, like ropes uh, with weights on the end of that ropes and then they would put it into the water and that's how they would check the depth of the water. Uh, a lead line was a simple device that was made up of a long length of rope and a weight on the end. Once the weight hit the bottom of the sea, the depth was calculated and recorded in the ship's log. So think about it. There, the, somebody's hanging over the side of the boat and they've got the rope tied and the rope's going into the sea and it's going down and it's going down. And of course, you know, they, they, they don't care as long as they're traveling in seas where the ocean, the floor of the ocean is deeper than their prow or than their boat. So of course they've got the they've got the the rope hanging over probably the side of the boat, the deepest part of the boat. And of course the rope shouldn't be, it should just be moving with the waves. It shouldn't be bumping up, it shouldn't be coming up. Well when they check fathoms, they lower that rope and they, they lower it to a certain point and as they travel they go, okay, once they feel the rope touch the bottom of the sea, they say, oh that's that's how deep it is. Then they kind of pull the rope up, they go a little further, then they put the rope down again, and then the rope, if it doesn't go down as far, which was what happened in their situation here, they realize the bottom of the seafloor is getting more shallow. And of course, as they traveled through the water westward, they had their rope in the water and the weight on the end, and their rope measured 20 fathoms. That was a depth of measurement. Then as they went a little farther, they got to 15 fathoms, which again showed them that the sea was getting shallower, which means that even though they couldn't see the land, they knew by their brilliant but simple method of checking the depth of the ocean that the boat was getting closer to the beach of the island they were getting near because as you look and of course every one of us probably that it's ever going to listen to me is has been on a beach and you know that when you walk off land the further you walk out of the beach off off the beach into the water the what the deeper you get well it works vice versa when you're coming off the ocean into the beach the closer you get to the beach the more shallow the beach gets so of course that's that's what they were checking and that's what they were looking for so look what happens next verse 29 then fearing least we should run aground on the rocks they dropped four anchors from the stern so they wanted to run the boat into the soft ground of the earth close to the beach not the rocks that can sit a little farther out from the beach. If they run the boat into the rocks farther out, number one, they're further out in the storm, not a good thing. If they run the boat into the rocks, the ship's prow just basically smashes to pieces and the ship goes down immediately, not giving anyone the chance to get off. If they, saw, if they run the boat into the softer earth closer to the beach, this would mean that, again, as I described earlier, the prow would get stuck in, soft, in, in the softer beach area, then the back would be kind of free. That would allow them some chance before the boat got broken up completely to actually get off and get safely to shore. Then they, I like how Luke points this out. It's a really interesting point I'm going to make here. Then they, after they do this, so they lighten the ship. That's what they did by dropping the anchors. When you drop the anchors, that takes a lot of weight, and that's going to raise the ship up out of the water when you take all that weight off, and that's, that's what they were looking to do. Travel farther, higher in the water, get closer to the beach. After they do this, then they, the verse goes on to say, pray for day to come. 
Now, probably the only true saved people on the ship were those that were Paul's travel companions. And I'm sure that all of them were praying the whole time this trip was going on, off and on, as any real true Christian should be doing. If I mean, I'm praying off and on all day long when nothing's going bad. And so definitely when things are going bad, I'm probably even intensifying my prayer just because I need God more now than I did when things were going great. I mean, not that I don't pray at all, but again, I pray, I pray all the way through my day. But then when there's an intense situation, I really intensify my prayer. So, And I'm sure they were. So I don't think that Luke is pointing out here the obvious reasons that are the obvious ideals that the Christians started to pray here because that wouldn't be that wouldn't be any surprise. Christians pray, save people pray, that's just what they do. That's not noteworthy nor is it common. So I believe that Luke's telling us here in this verse that not the Christians started to pray, but the people started to pray that were the ones that were in charge of sailing the ship and making these difficult sailing decisions. And you see, probably almost none of them were saved, yet they pray, notice only, they're in the, a finality of a life and death situation. Once they let those anchors go, that's pretty much, you're, you're pretty much kind of almost saying there, you're not really going to be able to stop the boat at this point. The boat's going to go on. You kind of lose more control on the boat. And of course, when we as people lose control, uh, especially in a life or death situation, we're kind of just like, that, that, this could be it. I mean, I could be basically signing my death certificate here by doing this. So, so they were literally here almost dropping all the stopping controls of the ship. And now it's good that they prayed. Don't get me wrong. It's always a good thing when people pray. But it here is a shame that they waited until they were in a terrible life-death finality situation. And I'm going to call it, it's terrible that they waited to do this and, and then pray an SOS prayer. Or S, and waited until it was an SOS situation before they prayed. Ladies and gentlemen, God loves it when people pray to Him. It's, it's called, talk to Him. It's called prayer. Right, But his least favorite prayer is the SOS prayer when you don't have any care of him any other time in your life. Uh, God loves all kinds of prayer, understand. But if you don't pray ever, but then all you ever do is sometimes pray an SOS prayer, God's like, I, you know, I, I, I hear you and, I, and I'm going to help you out. We're going to talk about that later and why God will still help people out when they do that. But God's going... I want you to pray all the time. Don't just pray when you're in trouble. What am I, just an SOS God? An SOS prayer is an amazing way to start a relationship with God in Christ, which means that after you start your prayer life with God, your, you know, your relationship with God, with an SOS prayer to God, then you continue in prayer in a relationship type of way, which is a lifestyle type of prayer. SOS prayer only with a lack of a lifestyle of regular prayer to God is usually a good indication that a person is not really right with God in Christ. That's usually a good indication that somebody may not even be saved. If somebody doesn't have a relationship prayer with God versus just an SOS prayer, only when times are going you know, tough, I'm concerned about that person's eternal life. And, and here's why. If, if we do it and we think about it logically, think about yourself and if you have ever or currently are in either a marriage or a relationship with someone else. Think about it like this. 
How many days could you go without talking to your spouse if you really love them? How many days could you go and not talk to your boyfriend or girlfriend if you really love them? Could you go a week? Could you go two weeks? I mean, I hear some people that profess to be Christians telling me that they haven't prayed. They don't even remember how long. If do they really love God? Because you could, I couldn't go a day without talking to my wife or my kids. I can't even go a day. And, and of course, I'm a big mouth. And my family's always talking. I'm always talking. So it was a joke even made this morning about how much I talk. So I talk all the time. I talk more than I should. I can imagine two days, three days, four days, a week, two weeks when I love somebody. So that's what I'm driving at. When you, if, if you could say you don't really have a prayer life at all with God, I'm concerned about your eternity. Because how much, how much can you say you love God, but you don't even talk to Him? Get my point? Anyway, we're moving on. I'm going to address some of this stuff at the end of the sermon too. So here, they prayed their SOS prayer, getting back to our message, but were they really trusting in God or Christ when they even threw up their SOS prayer? <laughs> Look at verse 30. Sadly, no. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, uh, I'll stop there. What that means is the answer is no, because what they're going to do is they're gonna tr- they were trying to make their own way to save themselves off the ship. God had already told them, this is the way the salvation's coming. You're going to have to run the ship aground. And that's what you're going to have to do. The ship won't be saved, but everybody else will. Here they were trying to make their own salvation from the storm. They're taking it into their own hands, putting the skiff off to the side. That was the little boat that if people got into it, they could you know, row it. and it, it, it could go all the way to the beach without getting stuck. And then it was a kind of a safer way. That's usually what ships do when they don't want to get too close to the shore. Uh, but you see, when you want God's salvation, you got to do it God's way not yours, kind of the title of the sermon, Obey Jesus Christ to Arrive Alive. What does Paul say about them taking their salvation from the storm into their own hands instead of trusting and obeying in Christ? Verse 31, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you can't be saved. That's it. Paul reminds them of the command that God gave them. Verse 26, after Paul told them the good news that they would arrive alive, he told them, however, we must run the ground on a certain island. There was the arrive alive with the stipulation of staying on the boat until they ran aground on an island for their salvation. Most of God's promises to mankind have a stipulation that involves us even in our own situation. Christianity, Christians are so confused in this idea. And I just had a talk with a Christian friend of mine that I've known for over 10 years the other night. We talked about the same situation. The Bible says that salvation is not of ourselves, meaning we can't save ourselves. And it says that it's not of works. But nowhere in, in God's word does it say that God doesn't give us any part to play in our salvation. For instance, our involvement in our response. Uh, it is God who... Excuse me, it is God who saves, but, uh, but us who have the responsibility to respond to the calling. And if you think, whoa, 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 Pastor Ed, now that's not what I've heard. Just read the scriptures for yourself. You've, I've read them over a hundred times. I, I, you, you probably read them over a thousand times. Just think of John 3.16, if you think I'm wrong. 
John 3, 16. Think, oh, everybody knows that verse, right? For God so loved the world. Yeah, yeah, well, that's, that's right, Pastor. That, but, but that doesn't say that mankind has anything to do with their salvation. Oh, yes, it does. I'll read it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's his deal. That's what God did. God made the saving. God did the saving right there. Gave his only begotten son to pay for the sins of the world. But if you keep reading, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's our part. We've got to respond. That's not us saving ourselves. That's not us working for our salvation. That's us responding to God's saving us, to God's offer to save us. That is something that we have to do. That's our response. Matthew 16, 24. If anyone desires to come after me, then he tells us what to do. Deny himself. Take up his cross. Follow after me. (laughs) Come on. This is God's salvation, our response to what he's done. That's true salvation. Not, oh, God saves me and I just can, I'm just sitting on my couch and one day God says, you're saved, boop, and then he zaps you and then, you're all, then you become born again. That's not how it works. I've never, ever, 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 ever heard of anybody sitting on a couch and then all of a sudden they're sitting on a couch and they feel a zap and they go, oh, I guess I'm saved now. That's, that's preposterous. And so please, don't tell me that God doesn't require us to play a part in, in getting saved. Not Again, not that we save ourselves, but that he expects us to respond to his calling, which makes us involved in us getting saved, not by works or not even responsible for it. Again, just being responsible to respond. Anyway, getting back to the message, do they listen to what God says to Paul this time? Remember why they're in this trouble, right? They're in this trouble because they didn't listen to God through Paul at Crete, right? Do they listen? Verse 32. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and they let it fall off. None of those on this ship outside of those Christians traveling with Paul listened to him the first time. He told them not to sail from Crete. And they're seeing where that's got them now. This time, obviously, they realize, hey, this guy... He's got something with this God of his. And, you know, he he told us not to go the first time. You know what? We better listen this time because this guy's got something. He's he's a bit wiser than he looks. And what do they do? They decide to do things God's way this time instead of doing things their own way. Look what happens, verse 33 and and verse 34. And as the day was about to dawn, Paul implored them to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day you have waited and continued without food. Remember, I've talked about that. And eaten nothing. Verse 34, Therefore I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. So so it was about to be daytime, which was good, because they might be able to possibly see something, have some light to actually see where they were. And Paul, the solid man of God, solid man of Jesus Christ, speaks to those on board, encourages them to eat something, because as he said, as I said earlier, they've just been two weeks without any food. And common sense tells us here to be strong enough to escape from a sinking boat in a storm-like weather situation, you have to have strength enough to be in sustenance enough in your body to actually do that. 
if you're weak and frail and falling to your knees and you can't even walk, how are you supposed to swim or get on a board or do anything to get off the ship and get to shore once God gives the okay and says, go ahead and do it? God will save them, but notice he expects them to be responsible to take care of their health in order to do what he tells them to do to be saved. Lastly there, he tells them that he is encouraging them to do this because he reminds them of God's promise to him. God promised, I've got you both, Paul. I've got you, Paul. Those with you, you're going to arrive alive. And remember, God is an amazing God of his word. And if he promises something, he guarantees it one infinity percent. And that's just the way it is. Uh, You just have to be ready to receive what he tells you that he's going to give you. If you are and you do things his way, you will receive what he has for you. Verse 35, And when he had said these things, he took bread, gave thanks to God in the presence of them all, and when he had broken it, he began to eat. He, he takes some food here and he thanks God, and that's pretty well easy to understand. But did you know that what he does here is much deeper? Much, 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 it's actually super deep. He first, he reminds them of God's promise to them all, right? By faith in him believing God, he says, hey, here's what God promised. But then he doesn't just let it off there. He makes sure he publicly shows them he trusts in God by eating the food and doing what he just told them to do. He put his faith as he was a Christian into action. And Christians, we have to do that. This is something God wants us to do here, right? Apostle James says, without faith, works is dead, and Paul's faith in Christ caused him to take action. Christians, this should be the same for us too. How do they respond to Paul's bold step of faith? To outwardly believe in God's promise and physically take the food and, 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 and show, hey, I really trust in God? Verses 36 through 38, then they were all encouraged, and they also took food for themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw the wheat into the sea. His faith spread to them so that they also put their faith in God and his promise, all 276 of them. They all put their faith. Faith can be contagious. If you have faith outwardly, not inwardly, if you have faith outwardly, especially in dire situations, Christians, that faith is contagious and it'll help those around you, fellow believers and non-believers, to put their trust and their faith in God as well too. Then here, knowing that the ship, another step of faith here, that they all probably would, <coughs> excuse me, probably wouldn't have been able to take If Paul didn't take his big step of faith, knowing that the ship was not going to make it alive anyway, they throw out their food into the sea. Basically, this is going to lighten the ship even more. Remember, they want to get the ship higher up in the water to miss those rocks to get it to the softer sand of the beach, the softer soil of the beach. And of course, a ship that doesn't weigh that much is lighter and it's going to travel farther in, especially when the storm, they want to crash into the beach so that they're close to the beach, so that the storm doesn't have a chance. Because if you crash farther out, the storm and the winds and the undertow could pull you back out to sea. Plus here, it's a huge step of faith because they realize, hey, there's no turning back. We need the ship to be lighter. You know what? We don't need to eat anymore. We're going to be saved soon. And so this, his faith was contagious and spread in an awesome way, right? Does their plan work? 
Does God come through with his promise as, uh, they, as they are ready now to receive it? Verses 39 through 44. When it was day, they did not recognize the land. Remember, I talked about that earlier. They had no idea where they were. They didn't even know they were in Malta. But they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the, ground, run the ship aground if possible. It's finally day and they can finally see something. Yay! But again, they don't know where they are and they have no idea where they are and they have no idea in what location they are, what sea they're in. So here, this is, I talked about both of those ideas earlier. They don't know where they are, but they recognize a bay and a beach that they can possibly run the sheep uh, the ship into. This is Malta, and they just don't know it yet. They'll find out soon. Verse 40, and then they let go the anchors and left them in the sea. This would be all the anchors now, even the anchors of the prow. Meanwhile, loosing the rudder ropes, that means that they're even losing control of the bag. They have no way to steer period now, and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. They let loose all in complete control of the ship and dropped the anchors. There's no turning back or stopping the boat now, and they raised the sails to catch the wind going towards the bay and beach, making themselves lighter, and verse 41, they, but striking a place where two seas met, the sea in the bay and the Mediterranean Sea, which is what he's talking about there, the ship or they ran the ship aground, and the prow struck fast and remained immovable. They did it. This is the scenario that they were hoping for. The stern was being broken up with the violence of the waves, is the last of that verse there, but the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. This is exactly what they were looking for. The prow was stuck. The stern was moving around, but that gave them time to get off the ship. The ship wasn't going to sink immediately. Verse 42, though, uh, right as they're in the midst of this of God's salvation, Satan throws a curveball, verse 42. And the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. Side plan of Satan to kill God's kids, plus all the other prisoners on board, which would also foil God's plan to save all of them, which would break his promise, even though they had obeyed Christ and prepared themselves for God's salvation. Ouch! Does God allow Satan's plan to work? Verse 43. But the centurion wanting to save Paul kept them from their purpose. God again working through a Roman soldier to fulfill his plan. God is good and a God of his word. Keep reading next the escape plan. So he stops them. They're, they're stuck. They need to get off now. The centurion then commanded that those who could swim just jump all overboard first and get to land and the rest some on board some on parts of the ships what he says here is get off the boat any way you can get off right now if you can swim swim go swim for shore swim for the beach it's right there go 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 hey you guys that can't swim grab a piece of the board of the ship see it's all being broken out upon there so the ship at this point would have been broke would have been breaking apart which means that boards that the ship was made of would have been floating in the ocean hey jump Grab one of those. Get a piece of the ship. Just whatever you do, float, sink, whatever, don't. Just go and get off any way you can. Uh, get off the ship before the killer storm destroys it. And I could add, I, I'll add here, I, he could have added, he could have said, this is God's salvation for us. The time is now. Do it. Go, 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 go. Because this is what happens, the end of the story, the end of the verse their salvation, last part of verse 44. And so it was that they all 
escaped safely to land. God fulfills his promise that they would arrive alive, minus the ship, of course, and they all, everyone on board, just like Christ said, makes it safely to land. They set out on their journey from Caesarea to Rome, total trip time without Paul getting sick, without the contrary waves, with all of that garbage happening, without their bad mistakes from, you know, from Malta, should have only taken a couple few weeks. Yet altogether, they barely make it from Caesarea to Malta in about six weeks and only by the hairs of their chinny chin chins. Again, Malta being a tiny island just south of Sicily, about 100 miles. And they wouldn't have made it Remember, if God wouldn't have given them and granted them their lives because the killer storm would have gotten them way earlier. Had Paul not been on board and he not been the blessing that this ship needed, that God wanted on board, they would not have made it. Period. The end. Paul, God told Paul, Acts 23.11, you're going to Rome. You're going to witness for me there. You're going to Caesar. He's going. And so he was going to make it at least. Paul not there. They made those bad decisions. All 270-something people, 260-something people, minus Paul and his travel companions, they would have all died. Finally, when all, uh, or the journey would have taken a bit longer had they just listened to Christ's messenger, Paul stayed in Crete. But at least they would have made it without nearly losing their lives and losing their expensive cargo of all the grain that they had. Probably thousands or tens of thousands of dollars of grain was all gone. The ship itself probably costing, you know, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. It's destroyed now. <laughs> Planks floating in the ocean that people were hoping to get to shore with. And finally, when all was beyond loss, they decide to listen to and obey Jesus Christ with Paul speaking for him and do what he tells them to do to be saved from the terrible tragedy that they had gotten themselves into. And because they do, because they obey Christ, because they stay on the ship, because they took food and, and ate, they did things, they obeyed Christ and did things His way, then they arrived alive. Now, the way that God saves them out of their terrible situation is awesome. <laughs> and I don't want to downplay it at all, but since we only live just a short time in this earthly body, my hope is that you'll take away one of the bigger pictures of why God did what he did for them. Not only did God do what he did for them for Paul's sake, but God really only had to allow Paul and those that were faithful to him to make it to Rome alive. He, he, everybody else could have been washed ashore, you know, but God was being gracious here and God was being, you know, God here. And God is awesome to save people when they call upon him with a prayer from their earthly, for their earthly provision or help in a terrible situation. God is even faithful, even as I've noticed in my almost 20 years of faith in him, God has even been faithful to those I've known that are not his. <clears throat> when they cry out with an SOS prayer, even up till today, December 30th, 2018, just like in this biblical account here, <clears throat> he has. I, I've known people that stood stark contrast to God and his ways in the Bible. <clears throat> Yet, when they called out to God in an SOS prayer, and I, and I knew some of these people personally, God answered them, even though they stood in their lives in stark contrast to God and his word. Bigger question here is we have to ask why. Why does God save people out of their earthly self-made problems and terrible situations when they call upon him, even, when, even with an SOS prayer, even for those that are not his born-again spiritual children? 
There's, there's a few reasons. Number one, he is good. Number two, he loves people. And number three, he does this to show people, even those that stand against him, his goodness and his love and his forbearance so that they turn to him. For, as we talked about this, even as a church before this sermon, Romans 2, 4, for it is the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. Or simply put, God saves people out of their earthly problems when we call them because he desires to save us from our greater problems, spiritual, and hopes that we will respond. Same as I just talked about earlier in the sermon. Everyone has a tremendous spiritual problem, worse than any earthly disaster we could ever face, and it's called sin. And it is our natural state. We are naturally sinful, and that is how we are born. And we are in this sin. We are rebellious against him and his son, Jesus Christ. And our rebellion against him separates us from him. And trust me, trust me in this. Being separated from God in Christ now and in eternity is infinitely worse than any earthly disaster or tragedy you could ever be in. The worst case of any earthly tragedy or disaster is that you lose your life. You can only lose your life once. If you're not ready to go to meet God, He's going to send you away into everlasting fire where, where you, the Bible says, will die every moment of every day for the rest of all eternity. So what you can go through here is nothing compared to what you can go through if you're not ready to meet God when you die. So in light of our great spiritual problem of the sin and rebellion and our being separated from God because of it, you must understand, as I just kind of said, you must understand that we are all going to arrive at heaven's gates someday. Every one of us, whether you believe in him, whether you love him, whether you hate him, whether you, whatever, everybody's going to arrive at heaven gates someday because the Bible says everybody will stand before the judgment seat of God. And since God is in heaven, we're all going to go the, to the gates of heaven to be judged by God. We all will. The question is, will you arrive alive to eternal life or glory where you will hear God tell you, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. Or will you arrive, but then God will give you some bad news and tell you he never knew you, or he might just tell you he's going to send you away into eternal hell because you knew him and because you walked away from him. Could give you that bad news too. God wants you to arrive alive in eternal life, not to eternal death. But how do you do that? Okay, well, the Bible says you do that by obeying Jesus Christ. How does Jesus Christ say to obey him as far as salvation goes? Remember, we do have a responsibility. I'll read them again. I'm going to talk about one of them. But Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, he says, Come to me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's your response. For God so loved the world, John 3, 16, that whoever believes in him, but, but not a head belief. <laughs> that's, a, that's a bit of a trickery from the devil because I can believe a lot of things with my head, but that doesn't mean because I have a head belief. If I have a head belief in, uh, that, I, that I'm married to the most beautiful woman in the whole world, which I am, by the way, but let's say that by the world's eyes, 
they, they think some supermodel on some cover of a magazine is the most beautiful woman alive. I say I'm married to that person whom the world thinks is the most beautiful woman alive. I can think that and I can believe that all day long, but does that make it true? No, I'm married to my beautiful wife, my most beautiful woman in the whole world. But just because I believe something in my mind doesn't make it so. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that all who would, Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to him, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And when you come to him, he expects you to obey him. Matthew, 20, Matthew 16, 24 and 25, he says, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself. That means he wants you to recognize that you are still in your sin. You are still lost and dead in your sin. You are, my friend, if you are not a friend of God, and if you have just believed in him like I believe in the sun and the moon and the stars, you, my friend, are still lost and dead in your sins. You have to come to him and do what he says here. And the first thing he says is to obey him, to arrive alive, is to deny yourself. Think about it. If, if we are born in sin and rebellion, that means we are our own God. Okay? That's what that means. But, so by his first statement, let him come to me, but anyone who desires to come after me, let him deny himself. That's you making a decision to take yourself off the throne of your life. You deciding to step off of I am the master of my life. That's how you're born. Denying self means that you decide to allow Jesus Christ to take the throne. And as cliche as it is, I think it was Carrie Underwood, but Jesus take the wheel. That's my life. That's what I made a decision to do almost 19 years ago, and that's what I make a decision to do every morning that I get up. I know when I was driving my car, called myself, I, I, life was worse. Life was horrible. I, I ran my car into so many ditches, and so many poles, and so much disaster. I, I, I'm su- I was surprised I wasn't dead, still had a car to drive. But I did a bad job. So I, I really said literally, and this is what the deny self means, get, on, get in the passenger seat. In fact, get in the back seat and invite Jesus Christ to jump into your car and begin to drive where you shut your mouth and don't tell him how to drive. You sit on your throne in your heart. You get off of your throne and invite Jesus to take the throne of your heart with you bowed at his feet. Not, not with you standing down there trying, trying to be the special interest group, trying to, to sway the king to support this cause or that cause. No. You bowed and surrender at his feet. This is what it means to come to Jesus the way he says in obedience to be saved. Your response, let him turn to him and let him be your God. Then he goes on to say, and take up his cross and then follow after me. See, all those decisions are one that let Jesus Christ be in control of your life. End result is, once you do that, he says, follow me. Start doing the things like I would do now. Now that I'm your Lord, start doing the things like I said, like I taught. That's what it means to let Jesus take the wheel. That's what it means to deny yourself, to let him take the throne of your heart. That's what it means to come to Christ the proper way, not just with a belief, not just with a prayer. That's what it means to come to Jesus Christ the proper way so that you can arrive alive 
when you get to heaven and not arrive to eternal death and torment forever. And I'll tell you, everybody always puts the emphasis on heaven or hell. Forget heaven or hell. I could tell you that right now, December 2018, I could not know what I would do if I didn't have a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ every day of my life. He takes my burdens away as I give them to Him. I get them every day, I give them away, and I walk lightly. I walk in peace. I love peace. I know the other way. 25, 26 years of my life, I lived with no peace. Now I live with peace. My sins have been forgiven. God has saved me. And I walk with Him as the King of my life, and with my life and my heart surrendered to Him. And this is what it means to arrive alive when you get to heaven, where you hear God say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So if that's you, and you were like I described, and not like this, Matthew 16, 24, then what are you waiting for? Turn to Him today and be saved. Surrender your life to Jesus Christ today. And let Him take the throne. Let Him take the wheel. He's waiting for you. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your good words, Lord. Thank you so much, Lord God, for this awesome story. Thank you so much, Lord God, how even the physical story paralleled into the spiritual way that you want people to be in order to arrive alive in heaven. Lord God, had these sailors not obeyed, then they would have died. They would have not arrived alive. But because they obeyed Jesus Christ, the same if we want to be saved, we have to obey Him. We have to obey what He said to be saved. Not obey what He told us to do as far as works, because the works come after we're saved. But there is an obedience that comes to arrive alive in heaven for the entry level of salvation, of being born again, of becoming a child of God, a spiritual child of God. And that's obedience. Obedience to uh, deny ourselves, take ourselves off the throne, put Jesus Christ on the throne, submit our lives to Jesus Christ. That is our responsibility. He has done the work, Lord God, and we know that. And we thank you for that. Now I pray, dear God, for those out there that are listening to me, that they would, with their responsibility, Lord God, that they would hear you calling and that they would fall on their knees and give their hearts to Christ right now. And then every day until they're either raptured or they perish in this world by some means and they go to meet you face to face. And God, I pray that everybody that listens to this message, even their loved ones, even their family members, even their church members, even their co-workers, even their school, people they go to school with. Lord, I pray that this message would go forth to all of them, even in the hearts of those listening right now, and change the hearts of all these people, Lord God, to turn them to where they come to true repentance and a true surrender of their hearts to Christ. Thank you, Lord God. And I pray all these things, and I ask them all in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen.